Heavy Hops is a Scorched Tundra production. You can access all our episodes with detailed show notes and information about upcoming events by visiting scorchedtundra.com slash heavy hops. Be sure to follow us on your preferred social media platform. Subscribe, leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you access podcasts. Thanks for supporting us and enjoy the show. Challenge the system, challenge the current recipes. I think um, due to this circumstances we're sitting in, it kind of not forced me, it led me into all these opportunities to really go and look what opportunities there is. Welcome to Heavy Hops. My name is Alexi. My name's Sam. Kurt van der Waal refers to his ventures in hop growing, malting, and distilling as experiments. There's a level of modesty in this claim indicative of his character. On his small farm located outside Pretoria, South Africa, you'll find four varieties of hops. Cascade, Krakenup, which is a cross of Chinook and Cascade originating from Australia, Drac Gold, a variety bred near Durban on the East Coast, and Nock, a local strain whose name references the rocky terrain on his farm, Naga Clip. In the face of monopolistic and uncompetitive practices on the part of South African Brewers, or Saab, a direct subsidiary of AB InBev, which owns over 90% of South Africa's hop production, to discourage hop growing outside of a region in which its interests are vested, Kurt developed a method to multiply his plants quickly and has engaged a number of small-scale growers who have seen positive results. In addition to his curiosity, creativity, and willingness to experiment, Kurt's success can be attributed to his commitment to ecological farming and symbiosis, which are unusual in a trade dominated by monocropping. Our conversation with Kurt revolves around these topics, home distilling, how shutdowns, alcohol bans, COVID-19, and social unrest have impacted the burgeoning craft brewing and distilling spaces in South Africa. Check out supplemental photos in our episode notes on the website. Let's dive and get heavy. Kurt, welcome to Heavy Hops. Uh, it's a pleasure to have you. Thanks. Thanks, Alexi. Uh, thanks for the um, opportunity as well, also to represent what we do here in South Africa. There's quite a bit. Uh, happening in South Africa. So for the first part of our conversation, let's talk about uh, some of the things that we got to know you through, which is your uh, agricultural interest, hop growing uh, in particular. So let's start off uh, with that. So why did you decide to grow hops and what was it about the agricultural world that was particularly interesting to you? Mm. Quite an environmentalist. Uh, I've got a, B, uh, a BSc degree as well in environmental management. I think the way my parents also kind of taught us to look after the environment. I grew up on a farm, um, so I'm really kind of dependent of the environment to fight myself. Um, so also being a kind of active community member, it was uh, some seven years ago, there was a big um, development proposal that came to our community, um, quite a, a distance, maybe 10 kilometers. So let's say 
five, six miles from me. Um, so I got involved there and the main developer on one, one of the meetings, he mentioned, you guys don't perhaps um, produce hops because we are, I live in an agricultural area. And uh, that started the whole, because he mentioned he's got clients in Singapore that will buy up um, all the hops we have. Um, because at that stage, we were also putting together a, a agricultural farming um, co-op system to try and promote um, the people from not selling their or developing their properties into, um, let's say, industrial use. Um, so uh, then I started kind of get interested. I did a lot of research and uh, I couldn't couldn't get for, I think it was three years, I couldn't get my hands on any old material. Um, we've got the national breweries um, in South Africa. They are growing hops. I try to contact them numerous times, send them proposals and requests. Um, there was no response since then, um, which is now about seven years later. And then my wife one day phoned me at work. She said on this website, there's a nursery that's about, let's say 50 miles from here. Apparently they've got hops. I immediately phoned. They said they've got two plants left. So I immediately jumped in the car, fetched those hopes for an enormous price um, and started researching how to multiply them. So uh, yeah, multiplying with rhizomes was not an option for me. So uh, I uh, applied some, some of my, uh, let's say, um, botanical knowledge and uh, with cuttings, heat pads, um, mist sprays, I managed to multiply those two plants into about 200, let's say within a month and a half. Um, but I didn't know what variety it was. So that kind of put me in a better foot. Um, I approached the um, SAB or InBev again on emails and uh, still no reply, got some uh, reading receipts, but uh, no reply since then. Um, so from there, I started growing them, putting up trellises, um, got my first harvest, I think within six months. Um, did a lot of research, didn't want to go the chemical agricultural way. So also I implemented the um, effective soil microbes that I use with a lot of organic matters. So in that process, I cleared up all the cattle crawls in the area and clean them out, use all the manure. Um, and uh, yeah, as I said, with the first first six months, I had my first harvest. I didn't know what really to do with it at that stage. So I started brewing beer. My father used to also brew beer when I was small. And uh, so, and the first beer came out really nice. The second one, also really nice. So that kind of sparked our interest to, to expand on that, uh, let's say, produce. In the meantime, also I experimented with a lot of other um, uh, natural 
how can I say, indigenous um, plant species trying, oh, not trying to, making uh, essential oils, which also utilizes the, the, the distilling technique. So I used my old um, copper um, pot still kettle that I made at Varsity um, to, to distill the, the lavenders, rose geraniums, um, lemon verbenas, as well as the uh, Lipia javanica, which is a um, it's indigenous um, shrub that grows here. It's quite like a, a wild mint, um, but um, it's indigenous, but it's quite invasive. So uh, as, a, as a child, I used to chop off hectares of these shrubs to actually increase our grazing on the farm. So I kind of have a little bit of a hatred towards them, but uh, I managed to put them to good use. Um, that was now for the essential oils. From there, we made facial creams with Moringa oils that we're also locally um, producing, um, as well as then later on, when I start distilling, I thought there's uh, actually quite a nice me uh, medicinal use um, history for uh, Lepia. So I introduced that into my gin. And uh, I must say, I had really good uh, um, feedback. Um, recently, there's one of the Netflix directors, film directors that lives not far from here. Um, he's also now producing uh, um, Bali um, for Heineken. But uh, he was involved in one of, or directing one of the um, movies they shot here in Pretoria, um, Silverton Siege is, is the name, and with their launch of the movie, um, international um, film stars was involved, so I, he asked me for a favor to uh, make a, a special bottle of gin for these, um, all, all these movie stars, for instance, Arnold Fosler, which originally comes from South Africa, he came back from America. So he also received his bottle of gin and we got extremely good feedback um, on, on the taste of that gin. So it's a proper gin made with juniper, um, but that then also has a botanical added uh, Lapia Javanica. So I think there's a strong market in the future um, for that specific gin. You've Please. mentioned a couple of, uh, you know, a lot of different types of manufacturing of beverages and oils and uh, things that are kind of rooted in nature and in sort of your, uh, your garden and farm. So tell us a little bit about this land that you're working. Um, what is it like? And is it an area that you thought would be appropriate for the growing of hops, for example? Um, and I guess connected to that in a certain way is, uh, were you surprised that Saab did not uh, respond to you in light of maybe what they've put out in the past as far as what they perceive to be or project to be good hop growing regions? Okay, yes, I was, I was really surprised uh, when I received um, those two first hops plants. Um, because they, I think they were neglected in the nursery. So they were really kind of, really looked like a, a, a shrub. Um, 
And uh, I've put them in, uh, I've got a small greenhouse or aquaponic system. So there you also grow fish or tilapia and then you use the wastewater for that. Um, so I started growing them there. Um, as soon as they started growing, I cut green cuttings from them. And uh, those cuttings, I, I kind of use aloe vera um, to, to kind of seal them and to sterilize them. And then they grow much quicker with the heat pads with the mist spray and uh, and uh, I was amazed with the how can I say the the quick growth and response within a week they will have roots already um, within three weeks they were already a uh, one meter high so uh, I was very curious to see because my farm where we live um, basically consists of 70 percent more of rocks the rest is just sand. So it's very poor agricultural potential land. Um, it is beautiful, it's good for game. Uh, we do have some uh, impalas and nyalas that's giving me a run for my for my money because they also quite like to eat dogs. Um, so we're permanently struggling with, with fencing because, and uh, yeah, so uh, it was very, Planting, planting the hops in, into the real soil was quite a challenge and uh, kind of, I also don't have much water. We're trying to run everything organically here. So the farm is running from a, a solar and inverter system. Um, so I also, the water water pumping um, from Boal is also done by solar. So I get about 2,500 liters a day that I need to use for all my lands and I've got some vineyards, I've got 2,400 Moringa trees, I've got some small cash crops, um, onions or beetroot, whatever is in the season. Um, and then also to spare, spare the water for the house and then as well for the hops. And I was amazed. I've done a bit of research, um, got some people involved that's, that can supply the soil microbes. Um, with some organic material, as I said, I, I collected in the community um, from all the um, livestock um, manure, and uh, I was amazed. The, the hops just within within weeks, um, put them in the ground. They were up meters, meters high. So uh, I went back to to the good old Google reread all those articles that actually claims that hops cannot grow in South Africa. Um, like it can only grow in a certain area with the, the airflow, air quality, and the um, duration of sunlight is exactly right for hops. And that basically makes it a miracle that hops can grow in Africa. So that kind of started to surprise me a bit. Um, so in the meantime, I managed to uh, get a willing um, seller from Australia. So I started the process to import a new variety. Um, I thought Australia might have similar climate because we, I, where I live is, is quite high and dry, as we call it, um, especially the humidity uh, in, in winter time goes very, very low up to 10, um, 10% humidities. Um, 
So when I imported the, the Kraken apps, I was, I was even more amazed. The, the, the vigor that the Kraken app actually outgrows the, the previous um, variety that we named Nak. Um, Nak is the farm's name. It's Noche Club, which means uh, another rock. So the name came from if you want to plant a tree, you have to dig out a big rock. Under that rock will be another rock. And then if you want to plant a tree, you have to get soil from somewhere else because now you've got a big hole. So uh, yeah, that's where NAC comes from. Um, so uh, with that second variety, I also started playing a, a bit on, on, on good old Facebook. And uh, I managed to locate another uh, grower also by luck, um, which also had a, um, the cascade variety growing in, uh, in, the, in the Western Cape down south. Um, so he also had a brewery at that time. So he was using his own hops for his, his brewery, brewery, Indian hops, of Indian, uh, Indian ale. Um, in the meantime, yeah, with, with all the restrictions and stuff, that brewery had to close down. Um, as far as I know of, with this alcohol bans, at least four or uh, 12 breweries and distilleries um, closed down, but I'm sure there's many more in South Africa because of the COVID um, uh, risk now. And, and I think now that all this looting is going to add to that as well. And just uh, to provide a little more uh, context for the for listeners to um, Saab, uh, Saab Miller, South African Brewers, which uh, was gobbled up in the formation of AB and Bev in 2016. They control the hot market more or less in South Africa. Um, why do you feel as though uh, it was convenient for them to uh, put out this literature? I mean, it's literally like press releases that they sent to news about the the efficacy and viability of um hop growing to this like really small region um why was this uh of interest uh to them yeah my my only explanation can be is to to try and prevent uh competition um as as we know the um the craft or micro um, brewery industry is growing rapidly. Um, so uh, I think they wanted to to dominate the market for providing providing hopes. Um, internationally as well, I've read quite a bit of blogs, um, especially from um, the microbreweries in, in the UK, where the guys was actually quite um, disturbed because they will one year they will manage to get certain um, number of, of kilograms of SAB variety hops, um, which which do have because of the South African, I think the soil, the microclimate, the sun, um, do have certain special aromas to them. Um, so the guys will build a brand and then the next year comes SAB will just announce it was a poor poor production year and we cannot supply you. Um, so in, inside the country and outside um, the, the micro and craft um, markets, I think they were, they were actually managed 
um, by SAB by not providing them with a, a constant supply of, of hops. So I think in, in my venture, I think that's not good good business practice. I would really like to try and make a change to it that we can put South Africa on the, on the map, provide jobs, um, provide opportunities to farmers. Um, and I think there's huge, huge potential um, in this in, in this field. And uh, as I say, I've, I've proven now that I'm growing four, four varieties, um, not just on my farm, I've done um, added tests. So a lot of my friends and neighbors and um, or other small brewers are also growing growing hops in the in the region. I even got some some hops growing outside of South Africa, which is basically in a desert country. So uh, really proving proving the current uh, uh, claims um, not being correct. Yeah, I kind of want to focus in on um, you, you mentioned your farm was 70% rock and 30% sand, and we're talking about hops and other agricultural products that you have on your farm that typically require a more legitimate soil, at legit soil profile, not sand, not rock. Um, how do you go about changing that um, dynamic on the farm to be better suited for a richer soil profile? Okay. It, it... I mean, as we all know, the, the chemical fertilizers actually it, it builds up salts in your in your soil. So that's one of the first thing I wanted to avoid. And I mean, I even had patches of, of soil, maybe 40 meters by 40 meters on the farm that was basically bare. No grass wanted to grow there. So firstly, I, I targeted those areas, made them into Moringa lands. Um, so I, I, I can't even plow here with a tractor. Um, I've got an old uh, TRB. I don't know if you guys know what's a TRB. The, um, it's got a front end loader as well as a, a excavator at the back. Uh, I've got an old, old, old one. It's a 1969 model um, JCB. Um, so I had to borrow trenches. So that I filled up with all. Um, um, organic matters that came out of the garden, out of the kitchen, out of the manure from, from the community crawls. Um, and then you add, um, as we say, effective soil microbes um, to that. So that actually breaks down that process for, for the organic material first to become compost um, before it's actually available to the plant. So immediately it's kind of break breaks down into nutritions that the plants immediately can use. Um, because with compost also you lowering your pH of your soil. So that actually improves your soil quality um, as well as with the Moringa, they say with the um, microbes that, that grows on the um, roots of the Moringas, um, it's, it's like alfalfa, it actually increase your, your nitrogen um, availability in soil. So that that also increase your, let's say your plant growth and the production um, hugely and over time your soil just get better and better and better. Um, so so we have um, in, in rainy season, we have mushrooms, we have all sorts of uh, um, gooseberries um, that we haven't planted. 
and uh, we just can't keep up with with the harvesting. And uh, so that really shows us that the soil is is back to its original health or ten times better than it was. Um, as I say, there was bare patches that is now lush forest. Um, if I don't cut down my moringas every year, they grow up to four meters. Every every winter season, I have to cut them down just to make them harvestable, manageable again. It, it seems you have a very biodiverse ecosystem on your farm, and there's a lot of research that shows specifically biodiverse farms with trees contribute to a significant better soil profile than those that are lacking or just monocropped. Um, so I would consider your method of farming a alternative way of farming. It's an alternative practice to the conventional model. Can you kind of guide us as to why you chose to farm this way? Yeah, I think, as I say, 70% is rock. So uh, really half of the three quarters of the farm is rocky outcrop. So there you can't even get in with the TLB. Um, so, so that means I've got very, very limited kind of flat soil available to, to work. Um, so that means I had to look at some crops. I can't um, plant wheat or, or corn or barley um, because I can't first plow it. And secondly, um, the profits or the feasibility for such small portions will be, will be too, too minimal. So that's why I decided to focus on let's say high intensity, um, something that can really produce some income from, from small scale. So that's why I looked at, at quite, you know, what do we call it, uh, scarce or rare commodities that, uh, that people can't use um, to get uh, cannabis production um, registered, um, it is possible, but you need a, a big fortune to make a small, small fortune. And I don't have the big fortune yet. Um, so that was one of the options, but uh, I did attend some, did some research and attended seminars and everything. But uh, yeah, because of, of uh, lack of capital uh, at the moment, um, that's not the option for me. You're listening to Heavy Hops. We'll have more from Ge van de Waal in a minute. There are a few things happening in the world of heavy hops and Scorched Tundra I want to share. Live music is back. The first Scorched Tundra Presents show is taking place on Saturday, September 4th at the Empty Bottle in Chicago, featuring In the Company of Serpents, Hive, and Roman Ring. You can find tickets at scorchedtundra.com tickets. We've also created a crowdfunding source for all things heavy hops and Scorched Tundra, if you love what we do and want to support us, find the donate link in the episode notes and give what you'd like. Giving any amount will grant you access to our growing Discord community. Thanks for this moment. Back to our interview with Gert van de Waal. In the production of your uh, the hops, you're also using land that is not on your farm. Uh, you've also supplied uh, growers with rhizomes. So can you uh, uh, tell us a little bit about the process of uh, sharing rhizomes or sort of empowering other people to pursue hop growing and maybe where you've done this outside of your farm? Yes, yeah, so I think firstly, it was for me 
I was I was so proud with the first plants growing, so I wanted to kind of spread the spread the risk. So uh, that's why I kind of distributed to a few close friends or families. But then also I wanted to see how they actually the production and how they're growing in different microclimates. For instance, where I live here, um, I'm frost free. I don't get any frost. Um, and just six kilometers where I've got one of my hops fields, um, there it goes down to minus six. Um, so just to see, see that variance um, in different production potentials, as, as I knew, I, I want to kind of expand in future. Um, so I can kind of add to my research where they grow even better um, than just here on my farm. And then secondly, is also to, to equip the, the community. Um, as we know, we've got quite a poor, poor agricultural community here. Um, a lot of guys uh, I've managed to find kind of jobs or incomes in the city. So they commute every day, the 30 kilometers um, into the, into town. So they're not utilizing their, their small holdings. Um, so that was one of the initiatives to try and equip them to get some sort of income, easy income from their properties. And that will hopefully stimulate them to look after their properties um, maintain the fences, maintain the fire breaks, and that will actually add to the whole kind of health of the community um, if they can start producing their own, um, let's say, income from, from their small holdings. And then, yeah, with the Moringa as well, we had a huge drive. Um, I provided a lot of farm, local farmers here with free seeds, free advice, um, we designed free free logo um, to to establish kind of a bigger um, potential export market with the guys. Um, if we all club together, we can actually build up this whole area or community. Um, and that has actually grown now. It's basically on my my Moringa support groups. It's nationally anyone within South Africa. Even I'm sending out of South Africa as well. If anyone small scale needs seeds, um, I produce produce or give it to them for free. Uh, tell us a little bit about the sort of small scale community of uh, distillers and brewers in uh, in South Africa. Um, how important is it, sort of, uh, as a starting point for people to be like a, a home producer and what does that sort of world look like? Because there's also a world of uh, lower quality uh, stuff that is that we may refer to as bootlegged. So what is the difference between these things and uh, where are you putting your efforts towards as a supplier of not just um, agricultural products, but also knowledge? Yeah, I think there's... To me, there's two categories of, let's say, the small small scale or bootlegger um, level. So, firstly, is your, your the legal small scale distilleries, or we call them, um, is the craft distilleries or the craft brewers, microbrewers. And uh, the last couple of let's say four years, 
that market has really kind of expanded. A um, lot of new, you can see a lot of new equipment's been bought in and developed. Um, the registrations has gone well, um, but there is some kind of uh, lacking on, on the registration process from government side, but then the government taxes um, or excise is extremely high. Um, so for these legal guys, it really makes it difficult to put a good product on the market to, to actually make money. Um, so then there's basically with the alcohol ban was the next next thing that triggers the, the two different levels. So firstly, you had the guys that was really just there for the money. They were making cheap stuff with sugar, sugar washes. Um, they didn't have the knowledge um to really produce good good product and then on the other side which hopefully i fall under um is the the, the own distillers um that really was interested in the hobby and i think one great thing from from this whole COVID 19 is some way we managed to all get into different whatsapp groups and and that was let's say legal current distillers, as well as then the, the normal home distillers. And just to note, home distilling is, is legal in South Africa and I think Australia, but very few countries in the world. So yeah, we we do do make distill on your own property, your own fruit. Um, so what was interesting is, is in that um, discussions and even up to now, is that those legal guys who are really open, the small legal guys were really open to sharing their knowledge. I think that's where um, Dr. Garth also comes in, uh, which is really knowledgeable. And I, and I think getting more knowledge actually excited the whole kind of process and people actually started doing more and more research and especially experimenting with, um, how can I say natural fermentations, open fermentations, um, using all these dunda dunda pits, um, adding uh, additional uh, um, bacteria, lactobacillus, um, to to your your washes to actually bring in those those creaminess. And I think people just went overboard, um, trying with every every berry and fruit that's growing in the garden. I have. And especially and especially focusing on let's say the natural fruits that grow here between between the 70% rocks. Um, so it's it's really tough environment here where I live, but uh, the the flavors that comes of those fruits, I think Dr. Garve explained, um, it's 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 really something unique. There's, there is an incredible sort of sense of place when you're talking about these different types of, uh, of fruits uh, that are that are grown locally and then added to uh, to the distilled product or used as like a fruit brandy. Uh, where when you're making these distilled products, who are the end consumers and uh, are these products staying uh, within South Africa or? <laughs> No, <laughs> uh, are, uh, where are these products going? Um, so, so I'm I'm still I'm small scale. I mean, I maybe I I do it quite regularly to the still, but uh, 
where I'm in R. That's part of my experimenting. I've got every batch is a different experiment. Um, so I'm not really there to, to, uh, to sell or to, to distribute. But of course, yeah, you have close family and friends that uh, as a kind of exchange program. And I'm, I think we, we kind of call it, uh, it's not bootlegging, but we have an exchange program. So there's never money involved. So you give me, uh, I know in lockdown, um, art lockdown, it was, yeah, we had difficulty getting, uh, for instance, meat. So I exchanged some, some rum to my neighbor for a slaughtered sheep. Um, so, so there's a whole kind of trade, trade that started without any money involved, um, which actually makes it quite, quite unique and kind of like a family. Yeah, and I think it feeds on this aspect of, you know, how community driven this area is for you and where you're growing and how everything is connected to this, literally like this sense of place, like Alexi was mentioning. Um, and for people outside of that region, how would you describe these, um, these fruits that we don't typically see outside of South Africa and you're making all these distilled spirits from? Yeah, no, definitely. Uh, we've got really interesting fruits, um, fruits around and uh, with unique um, taste that, yeah, I, I can't compare it to anything else, like the marula trees, like the kai apples, the mispal trees. Um, the, I think the, the only challenge is currently um, they're not grown commercially. So to get huge volumes of it, so it will really be a, a nest market, um, but the, 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 the different aromas and flavors that comes with it really makes it unique and, and I really hope um, we can expand on that because if those trees are also kind of good for the environment, you don't need fertilization, you don't need, um, let's say, enormous amounts of water, um, so you can really grow them naturally combined with, for instance, game farming. Um, so you can really produce some, some nice products. And for instance, um, my Marula Mampur, as we call it, um, which is basically a moonshine um, that is, that is not, not aged. But if I take that Marula Mampur and I age it um, on, on oak, um, the flavors that comes off there is unique. It's a brandy, it becomes sweet, sweet as a, a um, liqueur, basically. You can drink it on the rocks. Um, I think there must be a unique market for that um, because that flavor really takes you back to the African bush um, that we know it, um, as same as with the, um, the other fruits, the kai apples, there is some, uh, let's say investigations to grow them commercially uh, more wildly from our department of agriculture because they don't kind of um, deplete your soil nutrition. They don't need all that attention from um, maintenance. You don't need to plow them and, and uh, man maintain, let's say, the, the moisture content of the soil. They're really harsh, but they produce these amazing crops, good, good fruits, and the flavor profiles are unique. 
I just, I keep going back to this idea of, you know, you have these trees on your farm and that's just, it's like an unconventional farming practice uh, to have uh, trees on your farm and like this <laughs> knowledge of how much a tree can contribute to the biodiversity of a farm and how much it actually helps the soil profile. Um, it's just not something we see, especially here in America. You see it on a very small scale with small farms, but if we want to look at the future of agriculture and how to be more sustainable, it looks more like what you are doing and these small time producers are doing. Is this sustainability for the future and aspect? Is it something you're thinking about when you are farming and what you are doing? No, definitely it is. And, uh, it's kind of a, a mixed farming farming um, use. So, for instance, with these uh, um, natural um, um, fruits, fruit trees, the the impala, the game I've got, the impala and the, the nyalas, they they love them even more than I I do. So you also have to consider that. So they actually create this nice browse line. So they cut basically trim your trees to actually grow higher and and kind of more bushier and produce more more fruit. So they're actually assisting you to trim your trees. And uh, I mean, they also kind of, they get their, their nutrition from that. And all the fruits that's, that's let's say, spoiled that they can't, can't reach, um, that actually becomes uh, food for them again. And then in that same process, they are then replanting, eating those seeds replanting them um, at the sides of my farm. So I can already see from some of these trees how the, the game has actually contributed. I'm here, was it 14 year? I've had the game on for 12 years. So I can already see the fruit trees are actually increasing quite a bit, um, as well as we managed to to keep out the, the felt fires. Um, so that also kind of allows the, the the natural fruit trees to um, to kind of grow and establish. Because um, in the past, before I was here, every year it's just felt fire after felt fire, and all the small trees kind kind of get burned down. Um, so I think if the farmer kind of gets a bit of profit from his farm, um, then he will also start putting in those those fire breaks to actually protect his grazing and these natural fruit trees, marulas, kaiapos, mispols, against these uh, felt fires. Is the practice of staying away from monocropping and of having sort of a, a diverse ecosystem within your farm uh, something that's important that you're impressing upon people that you're selling rhizomes to or uh, that you're encouraging to get into uh, the production of things that then benefit the alcohol the alcohol trade yes i think as every everyone that's buying or getting uh ops rhizomes they get added to a whatsapp um, chat chat group and they also we we constantly kind of educate them and uh, especially with the ops because they got really shallow rhizomes or root systems so you don't want to get in with mechanical means to 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 try and prevent all the how can I say the the invader um, plants. So they really encourage them to have a kind of mix 
plant barley around them or wheat or whatever other crop um, that you don't need to kind of chop into the soil and, and kind of damage the, the root systems. Um, so to really have a kind of a mixed um, system. And I think especially here with me, with the small availability of, 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 of surface area, um, I think a lot of guys that comes here, they go away, they say it actually inspires them to see in such a small um, areas of, of, of soil that we can produce so many different varieties of, of, of crops. And uh, also with especially herbs, we plant uh, rosemary, um, lavenders, rose geranium, that also helps with pest control as well. So we're really trying to combine everything together to, to really be organic. And as I say, I haven't put in any chemical fertilizer for what's it, 15 years, and uh, guys are jealous on, on the crops we have, and we've got more than enough. I, I I also love the aspect of this wild grazing that happens just naturally because of where you're at, um, and it's it's another uh, segue from how we view monocropping culture, and some would kind of see animals grazing on your what will eventually become your your produce that you're trying to get high yields from um kind of diminishing that but in actuality as the animal consumes whatever's on your farm it's going to shit it out eventually right and so it's like this continuous uh ecosystem that just feeds it but that is the healthy and natural ecosystem so it, inevitably maybe not the first year, but the second year and the third year, you're going to see a higher yield of produce than you would if you were to do pesticides and herbicides to try and get a higher yield. Oh, definitely. And uh, as I say, with the with the fruit trees, I can already see all the marula trees sprouting all over. And uh, even with the with the game, I actually opened up my hops fields. Um, now for winter, they need to rest. So there was still green leaves. Um, so I opened up and they helped me to trim it. And actually at winter, you need to kind of, they need to go into rest. So actually you need to prune them kind of into the soil. Um, so I just left, left the gates open and the, the impalas and, and here from my office, I can see every afternoon now they're actually browsing the new sprouts because the ops are already trying to, to sprout, but that's bull shoots. You don't want bull shoots. So you can actually save yourself a lot of trouble um, instead of having to go and cut down every bull shoot um, in spring. The, the nyalas and the impalas are already doing it for me. So it's it's really a kind of a symbiosis that we, we're creating. And then yeah, in winter time, once and again, uh, some of the impalas, or they become a nice jerky or, or bultong, as we call it. That sounds delicious. I want to move into the next section. Uh, let's, it's hard to think about uh, South Africa and to not think about some of the uh, recent unrest and to think about some of the uh, impacts of COVID-19. And I, I want to talk about those things because it does connect directly to what you're doing as far as 
trying to empower people and using uh, agriculture as a means of uh, building permanent uh, economic opportunities for people um, through uh, private enterprise. And so let's let's kind of begin on that journey with uh, a discussion about the alcohol trade. And so where uh, are where where is the correlation between um, the distilling community? and all of these uh, sort of like uh, supportive industries and the uh, economic empowerment that really kind of needs to happen in order for a society to overcome some of these structural issues. Yeah, so I think our country is really going through a, a, a tough and difficult time. Maybe there's also some opportunities that arises from this. And I think one of the major one I've seen um, especially um, since this weekend with all the looting and rioting, is that communities, it's not, how can I say, the community is not saying it's, it's a similar religion group or a similar uh, color, race color. It's really the community. Everyone that lives in that area is, is starting to stand up together to protect that, let's say, that area of influence that they have. And uh, I mean, we were fighting with the taxi drivers, which I think is the worst drivers in the world. And suddenly the taxi drivers as, as a whole, they came to the party and they actually uh, leading this whole kind of uh, drive against non-violence, not, not looting, not um, destroying the economy. Because as they say, um, they can see it is, it, their, their business is to actually commute people from their homes to the workplace. So now if all the workplaces are destroyed, they don't have a, a function in society anymore. So I think that's one of the brilliant positives that, that came from this scenario. But yes, we, we still have a lot of kind of growing steps to, to, uh, to build on. But uh, coming back to the alcohol industry, there's a lot of um, of the alcohol industry that's that's been destroyed, the, the, the retail sector, um, as well as some of the manufacturing um, parts as well. So hopefully they kind of becomes a bit of opportunity for the, let's say, less commercial guys to, to actually also step into the market now. Um, but sadly, um, with this whole long stretch, um, 15, 15 months of, of on-off lockdowns, on-off um, alcohol bans. I think there's been five alcohol bans in the last 15, 15 months um, that actually ruined the small um, distilling and, and brewing um, craft market um, quite, quite drastically, um, especially with the craft beers because the shelf lives aren't that long. So there's been huge losses and uh, I personally know of, of 12 distilling and, and breweries that have closed down. Um, so suddenly you see on, on all these marketplaces, a lot of secondhand equipments coming uh, available. Um, just hoping that those equipments falls into good hands because you also have the other side that's really there to, to just exploit, um, to try and get rich quickly. They don't care about the, the taste, the quality, the, how can I say, the health effects. 
um, and we've there's been quite a lot of uh, reported cases of let's say alcohol poisoning, methanol poisoning, because of guys that don't know the trade. And uh, coming back to the let's say the true home brewers, home distillers, that's the guys that's really after the the quality. Um, the, the how can I say they are they are healthy stuff. Um, not having managing to to avoid all your methanols. Um, those are the guys that we actually want into industry is to make sure that our industrial let's say industry gets gets onto um, let's say world uh, specifications that we can actually also enter the world market and and increase our exports. Um, Currently, some of the commercial stuff that we do get in the country is really, really bad. Um, I can tell from experience when I used to buy them. Um, but since since being kind of converted to to, uh, to do it the right way, um, yeah, you can really feel and taste the, the difference. There's no no uh, side effects or how can I say hangovers in the mornings anymore. And you had mentioned that there is a big uh, sort of excise tax or that there were some uh, hurdles that uh, government has created that is not just shutting down the industry altogether, but also if you want to produce and sell locally, uh, there's a a massive uh, excise tax. Uh, Can you tell us a little bit uh, about uh, about that and what do you think it'll sort of take uh, to get this uh, this industry back in, in into a place where it can be competitive? Yes, I recently also uh, went to discuss with a, a local distillery, uh, Dryman's, which makes a really nice uh, single malt whiskey. I think it's also available in your country. Uh, I think I felt single malt. Um, so we went into talks with them because uh, I feel I've got some nice recipes I wanted to share with them. I've I have shared it with him, and uh, he, he he's also quite uh, excited about the let's say the future. It's a Brutia smoked um, single malt whiskey, and uh, then after discussing doing all the, the the calculations, he said to me, "I mean, for us to produce the first." Um, thousand bottles, I will have to put down 180,000 rands just to get those bottles um, into, as soon as you put it into a bottle, you have to pay the excise um, taxes up front. Um, So meaning you haven't sold a single bottle. Um, And I mean, in in this case, our excise tax is currently sitting at, uh, it's about $5.20. Um, which is um, 74 rand in South Africa, comparing to a cheap bottle of whiskey, a cheap bottle of vodka in South Africa, you can get maybe 420 rand, meaning it's 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 more than uh, two-thirds of the price. This goes to, to excise. So I think if we can get over that hurdle, um, that will actually open up the industry. And I think that's what needed now with all this 
kind of destruction um, that happened is to really create those jobs um, to release those skills of of, of all the, the distillers and the, the brewers um, that sits there, um, doesn't have work, is not creating work for others, um, is to really get that back into into industry and, and get them um, producing. So what is it going to take to get uh, all of these businesses uh, together? Because I think that's sort of what we're dancing, what we seem like we're dancing around a little bit is in a way it's going to take your community, which is your you and your distillers or you and the craft brewers and other growers to kind of uh, band together uh, to create some kind of uh, interest group or some type of force that's going to um, help itself. So what what does that uh, what does that take in 2021? I think first thing is 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 markets um, is to create that awareness in the market of unique products. Um, and I think in our distilling group, there's quite a lot of guys that's uh, involved with with meat and me distilling as well, which you get the most amazing um, flavors from, um, is to really get get that into the public and to get public to actually assist us in, in growing kind of that awareness and putting pressure on, on government because um, public is not aware of all the, the, the excise taxes that is that is actually applied. So when I start talking to people and say, but you, you're buying a, a, a bottle of, of, of vodka, do you know that only a third or quarter of the amount that you pay goes to the actual producer? So what quality does the producer put in there to make it profitable for him? And uh, just creating that awareness amongst the, the public that people, there's, there's a big problem. We're paying, we're paying the government the government is not supporting the sector. Um, they're not not providing any loans or grants. Just to give you an idea, in South Africa, there's there's 12 million taxpayers that's paying paying taxes. That includes businesses and and uh, let's say individuals. There's 18 million social grants being being uh, handed out every month. Um, so. So the few guys that actually can produce, they must be supported. But in, in, in the alcohol industry, especially the small scale, um, you really need to really need to equip them and help them to, to enhance themselves. Um, with the big guys, I mean, they've, they've, they've got insurance or they've got uh, capital um, to splash around, especially with marketing. The small guys doesn't that. But it's these small guys that needs to kind of get established uh, is to provide that sustainable market, sustainable uh, um, um, job opportunities for people. And uh, as I mentioned, there's there's a lot of jobs that has been not even just at the distillery or at the brewery, but just think of in the agricultural business. Um, all the guys that needs to 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 produce the let's say the the raw materials, the grains, the the, the um, sugarcane, the, the grapes, um, there's major job losses. Um, and that's directly um, just coming from because there's such a big kind of uh, uh, 
penalties on, on alcohol production. And then on the other side as well, the tourism is, is, is getting the same knock-on because they can't get the, um, let's say, the good produce, the good, good tasting stuff um, out there. They need to stick to the commercial because the other stuff is not available because the guys can't afford the, uh, let's say, the, the excises and the taxes and to establish. And now you have to pay all, all your excises and taxes up front. And during these lockdowns, you have to pay your rental, you have to pay your lease, your water, electricity, your, your loans to your people, but you can't sell. So it really puts a lot of stress. And uh, I can only foresee that a lot of more um, breweries and, and distilleries are going to really struggle to survive. Absolutely. It's hard to pay excise taxes when you have no cash flow. In sort of closing here, uh, I want to give you kind of an opportunity to share some sort of closing thoughts with our with our audience, uh, whether it be about the recent unrest or whether it be about um, sustainability. The floor is yours. Yeah, I think from a personal side, I, w- I would just say, challenge the system, challenge the current recipes. I think um, due to this circumstances we're sitting in, it kind of not forced me, it led me into all these opportunities to really go and look what opportunities there is, to go and harvest these fruits of the forest, um, to go and play with experiments, playing with, it's say, open fermentations, having your local um, yeast um, cultures uh, grown and developed. Um, and and as I think one thing I've done is to really try and benchmark against other persons. So I think my uh, account on sending out um, courier um, batches of small samples of all my different products to Dr. Goss, to Trimans, to a um, lot of um, some whiskey tasting groups, just to get feedback from them. So be open to to ask for feedback, but uh, yeah, accept that feedback in a positive way and, and build on that. Um, so yeah, feedback can be negative, but I always see it as an opportunity to enhance um, whatever you're doing to increase. And hopefully, yeah, the rest of the, the country, we can stabilize um, in future. And uh, I think we've learned a, a big lesson um, in quite a few communities how to stand together, don't see color and race and religion anymore as a barrier, actually work together into one common goal. Kurt, thank you very much for joining us on Heavy Hops. It was a pleasure having you.